Welcome to Nostrum, the debate soap opera, where deontology is more than just an idea, it's a rebuttal by Jules O'Shaughnessy and the Nostrumite. Before we get going, we do like to remind you that just as Jules and the Nostromite began writing these episodes at the beginning, you should begin listening at the beginning. All of our previous episodes are available at www.jimmenick.com. I do apologize for not being as prompt with Nostrum episodes as I continually promise I will be in the future. I do promise, however, that I will be more prompt in the future. Uh, The reason that I've fallen behind a little bit was that I was doing a View From Tab podcast about Yale, uh, and I had a number of technical difficulties with it. If you're a Nostrum listener, you might in fact be interested in the View From Tab podcasts. I recommend that you take a look at our podcast page and sort them out for yourself. Meanwhile, back to Nostrum. The episode that you are about to hear is a multi-themed episode, and I think it's the first of the multi-themed episodes that Nostrum, that Jules and the Nostrumite wrote. Just to bring you back a little bit, uh, we are at the point of starting up the Manhattan Lodestone original Vaganza, or other Vaganzas are merely extra. This is, of course, under the supervision of Mr. Lopat. He does have help. He has his former coach, who is over at Vale of Ignorance, committed to work with him. He has Kalima Milak. We remember her as the girl who perhaps has a human ear as a necklace. And, of course, he has the Magnet School of Manhattan Lodestone, which is filled with novices, junior varsity and varsity, and so forth and so on. He has about 10,000 kids. They ought to be able to throw a tournament. Meanwhile, of course, we have had at least one session with that assistant coach, former assistant coach at Manhattan Lodestone. That, of course, was Lisa Tort. But I have to remind you that the reason she went to Vale of Ignorance is because her predecessor was removed from the job after being picked up on a morals charge. There may be some new business stirring there. Meanwhile, over at Old Yeller, which is also known as Night and Day School, you might remember that of all people, Hamlet P. Buglaroni won a trophy at his most recent tournament. Buglaroni took tin, as we say. Very interesting. There may be more to it. In any case, uh, we will try to get back, as I have promised so many times, to regular broadcasts. For those of you who are listening in real time, 
and I do envy you because I have not been in real time for a number of weeks now. I'm doing my best. This is the week before the Big Jake tournament, which bears some resemblance to the fictional Manhattan Lodestone, and I am involved in helping put that together. This is easier said than done. And I had a cold, and I had a lot of hardware problems, and yada, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. In any case, let us not be deterred from episode 57, Things That Go Bump in the Day, a Nostrum Potpourri, Celluloid Heroes. You can see all the stars as you walk down Hollywood Boulevard, some that you know and some that you've hardly even heard of. And the search is on to add another to their number. Every kid I see wears phony on his head like a backwards baseball cap, Hans Castorp says in his thick Teutonic accent. Hans himself is wearing a backwards baseball cap over shoulder-length, dirty blonde hair, so he would appear to have first-hand evidence of the haberdashery in question. Hans is the director of two successful action films in a row, making him the latest Hollywood wunderkind, or at least one of the latest, provided that your definition of kint stretches a smidgen or two over the age of 30. With hands in his office are his secretary, his assistant, his personal trainer, and his nutritionist, as well as the producer, casting director, and assistant director of his upcoming film. They're all actors, Hans, the casting director says. She is a large, middle-aged woman in a bright print dress. They've all got experience. That makes them desirable. Unfortunately, the price you pay for a kid who knows how to act is that they already are actors. Exactly, Hans says. Actors. Phonies at the age of 15. Yeah, and I don't want a phony starring in my motion picture. He extends his hand, and his nutritionist puts a fresh cup of herb tea into it. What is this? Hans says, sniffing it warily. Ten o'clock tea, the nutritionist says. I wanted water. At ten o'clock, you drink tea. The nutritionist is a slim, blonde-haired young man whose insistence is much firmer than his appearance would have predicted. The director does not argue, but begins sipping the tea. Where do you want me to go, Hans? The casting director asks. We've done casting calls here in L.A., we've done casting calls in New York, we've done casting calls in Miami. We have seen every slightly built 15-year-old male that exists on this continent. We've seen every slightly built 15-year-old actor that exists on this continent. There's a difference. I know you want an unknown for the part, so I've been calling for unknowns, but they've still all got some experience in commercials and theater. True unknowns don't answer casting calls. They don't know what a casting call is. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? The producer speaks up. He's roughly the same age as the director, but he is a short-haired suit wearer. You're not suggesting that we hire a complete amateur hands, are you? We have to have an actor to carry a picture this big. 
Uh, I can turn any kid into an actor if he already has some native talent. But I've got to have somebody fresh, somebody new, somebody real. Do you understand that? I do understand that you've got to have somebody in two months, the producer says, because that's when we get Bruce. And without Bruce, this picture goes down the toilet faster than yesterday's tuna casserole. And I'm not going to be able to find you a capable unknown in that amount of time, Hans, the casting director says. It's just not possible. There aren't conventions of articulate teenagers where all we have to do is walk in and pluck the best of them out of the trees, if you know what I mean. The situation just doesn't exist. The personal trainer has been arranging exercise mats on the floor of the office, doing her best to stay out of the line of fire. At 10.30, she is scheduled to take Hans through his late morning stretching regimen. As a Hollywood professional, she knows how to keep a low profile in a high-tension situation, but now she speaks up. Actually, she says, there are situations like that. Like what? the casting director asks. Conventions of articulate teenagers where all you have to do is walk in and pluck the best ones off the tree. Everyone in the room turns to look at her. When someone talks out of turn, it had better be good. The trainer, a pretty 23-year-old freckled redhead in a warm-up suit, smiles. When I was a teenager, I used to be a debater in high school. And like every week, all over the country, they have tournaments for debaters and also for speech kids. A lot of those speech kids do acting routines. It's sort of like theater arts with, without the theater. But the debate kids are sort of like actors, too. They're certainly around 15 years old. A lot of them are slightly built, and they're definitely smart enough to do the job you want them to do. The room is silent. After a minute, the trainer tries to disappear into the carpet. Sorry, she says. No, Hans Kostorp says, jumping to his feet. By George, I think she's got it. He turns to his casting director. Claudia, find the next debate tournament. This weekend, the biggest and best one, you and I are going to find our star. The Seth will rise again. The house is starting to smell. There have been too many pizza deliveries. With too many boxes saying you've tried all the rest, now try the best still scattered around every room of the house. There have been too many beer cans popped open, with too many empties tossed into the non-working fireplace, some of them with an ounce or two of dregs dripping out. There have been too many cigarettes with overflowing ashtrays on the tables, the arms of the chairs, and on the floors. There have been too many days of sitting unbathed and nearly horizontal in the lazy boy watching whatever is playing on HBO, with the result that he has seen Independence Day enough times that he is starting to see the flaws in Will Smith's acting style. There have been too many walks past the cat box thinking that there's still a few dry grains of sand in there somewhere. There have been too many opportunities for him to stare at the Messerschmitt trophy that Tara Petskin left at his front door. Too many opportunities for him to sink into the pit of his own despair, to evaluate his personal tragedy as succumbing to the lure of his own fatal flaw, his inevitable appetites. His appetites for food, for ideas, 
for women. He stares at the ceiling. What was he thinking about? How could he have ever allowed himself to do something that foolish on a debate trip? It wasn't really a question of right or wrong, but a question of propriety. He closes his eyes. All right, maybe it is a question of right or wrong, but that notwithstanding, he cannot stay in this house forever surrounded by his own dirt. He pulls his chair into the upright position. He points the remote at the television and turns off the power. He stands up. First thing we're going to do, he says aloud, is to clean up this place. And then? And then we're getting out of here. Nancy Drew and the Missing of the Case Damn it, Jasmine Maru says hellishly. What's the matter, her sister said solidly. I can't find my cases, Jasmine explained searchingly. Which ones, Camelia asked specifically. Both of them, Jasmine replied affirmatively and negatively. Camelia Maru, girl detective, pondered the situation. Ignoring for the moment that the fact that she and her sister had somehow slipped into the past tense for no other reason than a few cheap Tom Swifties, she began to connect seemingly random events into a pattern, little knowing that this was how Lisa Tort had recently defined paranoia. "'When did you lose them?' Camelia asked timelessly. "'I wrote them last week and brought them to the meeting Thursday,' Jasmine said historically. "'Who was at the meeting?' Camelia asked presently." Pretty much everybody, Jasmine said completely. All the novices and all the varsity. They were good cases, weren't they? Camelia questioned positively. I was really solid with them, Jasmine said thickly. That's right, Camelia commented adroitly. I must have just misplaced them in one of my classes somewhere, Jasmine said scholastically. It's no big deal. I've got them on my computer. I can just print them up again. Besides, I did want to work on them a little more. Isn't it a little strange, Camelia said eerily. You had them at the debate meeting, and that was the last you saw them. What are you getting at, Jasmine asked insinuatingly. Maybe you didn't lose them. Maybe they were stolen, Camelia said sinfully. Stolen, Jasmine repeated sweetly. Let's just put two and two together here, Camelia said additionally. Was there ever any point where you didn't have them right in front of you? Hmm, Jasmine said blankly. I got there early. No one else was around. Not even Mr. Jumpmall. I left my backpack and went out to get a bottle of water. And when you got back, Camelia returned dorsally. I still don't think anybody was there yet, Jasmine said lonesomely. Oh yeah, wait a minute. Bug Laroni was there. I remember that. Bug Laroni, Camelia repeated creepily. And what happened on Saturday? Oh my God, Jasmine said divinely. You're not saying, Buglaroni is the worst debater on the face of the planet, Camelia said earthily. There's no way he could win a round by himself. But if he had your cases, and was only going up against a bunch of novices at an NDL, even Buglaroni might be able to win. That's totally dishonest, Jasmine said truthfully. He wouldn't do that. I've known him since kindergarten, Camelia said childishly. I've been in the same grade as him since we were born. He's a jerk, and he's weird, and I wouldn't put anything past him, not even stealing your debate cases. But he'd have known he would eventually get caught, Jasmine said ensnaringly. How? Camelia asked, now brown cowingly. Only night and dayers would know it, and none of them would be in the room when he ran the case. 
The little bastard, Jasmine said illegitimately. But wait a minute. We don't really know that he did it. We don't even know my cases were stolen. This could all just be in your imagination. The last thing I want in my imagination is Hamlet P. Buglaroni's, Camellia said nightmarishly. You'll never be able to prove it, Jasmine said puttingly. I'll find out if it kills me, Camellia said death-defyingly. He didn't just tab error me out of my trophy Saturday. At least that wouldn't have been his fault. But if he stole your cases... What? Jasmine asked gloriously. Welcome to the Bahamas, Buglaroni, Camellia said nostromically, returning us now to our regularly scheduled program. Will Hans Castorp find a slightly built 15-year-old to star in his next blockbuster? Will the Seth really rise again? Are Camellia's suspicions about Buglaroni correct? Does anyone listening to this know what a Tom Swifty is? Will Nostrum be using more multiple-themed episodes in the future? Stay tuned to this radio station, where next Wednesday, yeah, right, we will not hear Lamont Cranston say to his shadow, Benzedrine, the drug worth staying up for, or the best way to remove those stubborn grass stains from Grandpa's favorite overalls.